And here we are again coming at you, the Hard Talk Podcast. Welcome, everybody, to the Hard Talk Podcast. I am your host, Jordan. I am here with... This is Josh. Yoel. Guys, I am so nervous right now. But first, an ad. Wait, why are you nervous? This episode of... You can't just throw that out there. (laughs) (laughs) Guys, I'm about to die. Oh, but uh, but let's read an ad. Tell us why you're nervous, Jordan. We'll get to the ads. One he's moment. Too, he's too nervous to even talk about it. I, I can't even do it. <laughs> Let's go. Come on. He's up. This episode of the Hard Talk Podcast is brought to you by Sourdough by Vera. Sourdough by Vera, under the hashkacha of Rabbi Mordechai Turkeltab, a great mole, makes a unique handcrafted variety of sourdough bread and artisanal dips. The perfect way to enhance your Shabbos. Follow us on Instagram at sourdough underscore by underscore Vera, a little complicated, to see our weekly menu. For a limited time only, Sourdough by Vera is now offering new customer 10% off your first order by using the promo code Hard Talk Podcast. Love it. That is huge. That is amazing. We are fans of Sourdough by Vera, and I know that Josh is a customer. I get it every single week. Love it. So uh, you're not eligible for the 10% off. I'm still going to use it, though. Okay. Is there a disclaimer in there? My wife has ordered, but um, I've never been a customer, so perhaps... I might order as a first time if I could just as, say as a first time consumer. The past couple of weeks has been the best it's ever been. Really? Yeah. I wow. actually I actually wrote that to uh, Vera's husband. Okay, while I'm excited about Sourdough by Vera and their new relationship <laughs> with the podcast, I'm incredibly <laughs> nervous because I have notes, questions, comments, pictures. I'm like so prepared for this podcast, but I'm I have no idea what it's gonna be. Here's how the podcast works. You just show up and you talk, and that's what we do. That's what I do. I feel like there's a lot of pressure having Ricky on though. There's, you don't there's need expectations. To, you don't need to prepare. You just walk in and you just talk. And you make bad jokes and hopefully some of them. Well, in Jordan's stick. defense, he's the one that does prepare the agenda every single guest. So he's got a little more. Oh, you work before it. you get in here? You all did prepare. You all like do you want to preview some of the questions <laughs> you want to ask? I actually I and, a, and by the way, why don't you tell the listeners now? We don't know if they'll get into the podcast or not, but tell the listeners what you're gonna go for. Some of your ideas. Yeah, a little preview, and then when it happens, people will laugh because oh, I heard that in no, an no, intro. No, we have to wait for the suspense. Okay, fine. I'll see if I'm feeling it. Yeah, you know, I gotta feel out our guest. That's how we do it. I just right. I play everything by ear. This could go in a lot of different directions. I think that it's possible that we talk about the life and legacy of a very important figure in uh, Chicago's Jewish and broader community. I think it could be fun and funny. I think we could get some great stories, or it could go off the rails. I have no idea where it's going to go. I mean, he is somebody who is recognized worldwide. And yes. I, I'm not even like exaggerating. Uh, you know, I am exaggerating. He's not really known in Europe. <laughs> most parts of Asia. Europe, he's not known? No. Is, yeah. is he known in China? Yeah. Uh, yeah, most parts of Asia, I would include right. China in that. For sh- uh, you, you, a better word would be he's he is internationally known, yes. but just not throughout just, the whole world. How about we just say like Israel and throughout the United States, Canada? I don't know. I don't you know. tell me. Yeah, I, I mean, yeah, Israel for Could sure. Be. All right, Cleveland yeah. has siblings there. <laughs> <laughs> okay, yo, well, you obviously go back with Ricky because of your father's relationship with him. Yes, so- my my father grew up with Ricky. So as a child growing up, I I did know Ricky growing up. I had uh, many opportunities to hang out at his house. We can get into that later. Uh, There'll be a lot of questions regarding that. He did once take me to his office to clean the blinds on a Sunday. He had to go work. Basically, I was horrible at cleaning blinds, like individual ones. How old were you? I was probably nine. 
he was calling me fool and <laughs> like I didn't know what I was doing. And then like at some point I was with a friend of mine. We escaped to the, there's like a Toys R Us across the street. I think it was like by Western near Addison. Uh, obviously MapQuest comes in. There used to be a Toys R Us over there. I think, I think right now there is like a, the, a police station there, like Addison and Western. 3535 Northwestern. Yes. Wow. Okay. So yeah. So yeah. To- West I'm Addison. Ready. And I'm Addison ready. is 3600. The, pre- the preparation already right. pays off. I told you. I don't lie there. But uh, yeah, I've known him uh, for many years and he actually... But we can get to this uh, later on regarding his relationship with both my parents and uh, my in-laws and okay. all that. I, by the way, no, I, I'd rather you get it out now. By the way, that was going to be a question. He was going to say, so Ricky, do you remember on a Sunday <laughs> when I came and cleaned your blinds? I, there's only... <laughs> so I'm happy that like right. get it out of your system. Right. He used to actually drive. And as he would be driving, I'd be in his car. And he'd like tell cars like... You stop and like just cars <laughs> like the reds is like he would just like go through and like like command cars from like I don't know if it was working or not I'm like but this guy does not drive like my father so that's what, one of the things I picked up as a child. Staying in the moment, I think let's just set the stage right now. We are starting. This is like we're doing our intro and we are waiting on a call from Ricky. Correct. He's gonna call Josh. He he's oh, wait, he's coming I, here. He's coming I, here. He already told you what time. He knows where your house is. But he said he's not coming until he calls you. And I still right. texted him because I'm crazy, just saying well, we're in the basement. Right. I'll come up as soon as you're here. I think we should go back, actually, just tell some of our listeners who do not know who Ricky Rothner is. Oh, that's not bad. Yeah, I think we should just sort of... Okay, so yeah. yo, you give the intro. intro. You know uh, the best. Ricky Rothner was born in, um, I believe, March of 1944 here in Chicago, I believe. That makes him, was it uh, 78 years old? He's been a well-known member of the community. He has four lovely children and three lovely stepchildren who live uh, throughout the community or some, I guess, not all live here in Chicago. Actually, one does. And this is why Jordan does the intros. Yeah. But anyways, so he has children here in the community. He The kids went to schools here. Um, Good to and know. he is a very successful businessman. He started, I guess, in vending, and then he ended up in the nursing home industry. He can explain to you, and he does, does a lot of real estate, does real estate in Israel. So he is a successful businessman, but he's most recognized for his charitable contributions and building Torah, building ed- Jewish education, Jewish causes throughout the world, not just Chicago not just United States, you know, everywhere in Israel. And it doesn't, you know, from the far right to the far left. And it's extremely, extremely impressive for a person just to be just that, you know, centered and, you know, looking to give, you know, to all all different types of people. He's somewhat of a unicorn in that that respect. For sure. Harborview Capital Partners is a full-service real estate finance equity and advisory firm focusing on HUD-backed loans. Their mission is to be an innovative partner with their clients providing unparalleled access to debt, equity, and advisory services for all the commercial real estate asset classes, including multifamily, healthcare, office, retail, industrial, and hospitality. Their industry-leading proprietary mezzanine loan program allows us to constantly deliver exceptional results for their clients. A great HUD lending service. Hit them up. I prefer New Point. New Point. Yeah, we've got some competition going on here. All right, gentlemen, I made a big mistake. I was doing well for a while. And I happened to be visiting uh, my parents this evening. Just, uh, just out, of the, out of the blue? Yeah, I won't get into it, but I was there. Okay, um, very nice. Anyways, uh, it happened to... Josh, go check on Ricky I'm gonna while y'all tell the story. I'm going to call him now as, as we're sitting here. Yeah, call him. Put on speaker. Yeah, speakerphone. Right here. Sure. What you say, boy? We're going to be like half hour in before they know oh, who we're ready. Hey, Rosen, I'm in my car. Beautiful. I'll you're come get... Now, what's the address? It's, I'm on. It's, it's, 
I'm I'm coming. I'll come outside. I'm coming outside. Driveway. Driveway. You just park park in the driveway. Park in the driveway. We are here with Mr. Eric Rothner. Thank you so much for coming out. AKA Ricky. And by the way, that song was called All I Do Is Win, Win, Win. So that was the in, your in your introduction honor. song. Thank you for coming. My delight. Okay. We wanted to start this interview and get to get to know you better, learn about more about your life, your legacy, what what matters to you. And, you know, obviously you are a very prominent member of this community, one of the great leaders in, you know, the past 50 years. So I wanted to start, Mr. Rothner, or can I call you Ricky? Ricky's fine. Okay. We see a lot all over the community. You've obviously donated many uh, wonderful institutions and buildings, and we see your parents' names gracing the buildings, Nathan and Shirley Rothner. Can you tell us a little bit about growing up? I don't know if it was the West Side or Albany Park and your childhood a little bit. I was uh, born in what was called the Garfield Park. That was a little north of the west side, about where the Eisenhower Expressway exists today. At that time, we were three children. My parents lived in a one-bedroom apartment in the 4100 block of Congress Street. The living room was our dormitory, three brothers. And then in 1947, we moved to Albany Park, and that's where the Jews were, were moving. My oldest brother was in sixth grade, went to the academy, my other brother, who was a world-renowned pediatric neurologist, went to public school and then went to Hebrew school. And when I was in kindergarten, my parents started uh, what is today uh, Airy Crown Hebrew Day School for me and four other children. I actually spoke with my father regarding that, and he said, despite the fact that you were three months older than him, you moved a grade ahead. I said, why was that? He said, his parents started the school. They probably want him out of the house earlier. <laughs> There's truth to that. They, they wanted you out early? I'm sure they did. <laughs> yeah. Ricky, some of the community stuff going on at the time, you were heavily involved with B'nai Kiva. I was. I was very, very involved in B'nai Akiva at that time and Camp Mojava. And later in life, I have in a newspaper article here, you were elected as the youth director for the Council of Traditional Synagogues. Right. I was always involved in, in uh, youth work. I had a good time doing that. And at that time, there was the beginnings uh, of NCSY, which was National Council of Synagogue Youth. And that was run by the OU. And they would not allow a, a group or a shul that did not have a machitza and had a youth group in to NCSY. So we in Chicago, there were two wonderful people, Cy Oakner and Lenny Glass, who started this program. And uh, we called it Traditional Synagogue Youth. We were very successful. And uh, these were all shuls that had Orthodox rabbis, and the shuls themselves had no mochitzas. And uh, we built a very, very nice group. Uh, NCSY helped us. I remember our first Shabbaton that we had in midwinter that we rented a uh, camp from the YMCA camp, YMCA, and we had several hundred kids there. And Rabbi Stolper, all of our shalom, who was the head of NCSY, came to Chicago, spent the weekend with us, and uh, we were very, very well accepted. But we were called traditional synagogue youth 
because our synagogues that were in charge of the youth programs did not have a mechitza. Well, Chicago was like in a big, like in, later with Rabarn, and there was like big questions or, or big fights in the community, specifically Chicago, regarding rabbis with mechitzas and shoals. Chicago and was the traditional synagogue youth. Traditional synagogues was something that was born in Chicago. Had Orthodox rabbis. Service was Orthodox. The uh, there was a microphone and the, the, no mechitza. The microphone. There was no mechitza. And as I said before, the service was an Orthodox service. Tell me if I'm wrong, but you didn't follow the educational path that your brothers went. You ended up at the yeshiva, is that right? Well, I ended up at day school. My oldest mm -hmm. brother went to the Hebrew parochial school on the west side. And then when my parents moved to Albany Park, he was in sixth grade and he went to the academy. The academy at that time had a sixth, seventh, and eighth grade. Then he went to the academy, then he went to the yeshiva, mm -hmm. and he got a degree from Roosevelt University. I pretty much did the same thing. It was a different time in, in the world. So in 1962, I and a bunch of my friends got on a boat, and after we graduated high school, and we, we went to Israel, and we spent 14 months in Israel. We spent the first three months in Yeshivat Merkaz of Rav Kook, we spent a lot of time learning Torah subjects, and then we also worked on, on kibbutz. I actually have the September 5th, 1963 edition of The Sentinel in front of me. And there is a title here, 12.30 p.m., Beth Yitzchak Sisterhood, Drake and Leland. Teenagers Morris Kushner and Eric Rothner will discuss what I gained from my year in Israel, what I recommended to others. So... You, at the time, and your group of friends were somewhat pioneers in going to Israel in the first place? We took a boat <laughs> and spent 14 days yeah. on a boat. My father tells me how good the food was. Food was fabulous. Yeah, that, he still talks about it. Yeah, Breakfast, lunch, aruchat arba, and yeah. supper. Look at that. We were teenagers. That means we had large appetites, and we were never able to eat more than two meals of those four that were served to us. And uh, we spent 14 months in Israel. None of our parents came. There were no telephones that worked or they were too expensive for us. So it was a totally different experience than exists today. So during those 14 months, you were not able to speak to your parents at all? No, we didn't speak to our parents at all. Send letters? We sent letters. Okay. But we didn't speak to our parents. No, none of us. And in 62, oh, yeah. Israel was still like a very much a third world country. Oh, it was very much a third world country. <laughs> the greatest is we got off the boat in Haifa. And as all we were asked is do we have wristwatches or transistor radios? It was a different thing. We had Mishalochim that came to visit and collect money in Chicago. And we were expecting to see tents. People were poor. There were no tents. There were buildings, and it was really a shakaroo. Wow. I actually had that same experience as a child at Hello Torah. In third grade, they showed us like Yom Ha'atzmaut or something. They showed a video of like someone like riding a motorcycle through the Negev, and I was shocked because like, I thought Israel was just camels like and Bedouins. tents. Yeah, Bedouins. Like I had no idea there was like cars and electricity and buildings and, and houses. Like, and yeah. 
So I'm sure it was a very inspiring experience. So when you came back, then you continued at the yeshiva, or you went into you went to work. I went. No, I was at the yeshiva already. Uh, yeah, I went to the yeshiva. I went to the college at the yeshiva at that time, mm-hmm. and then eventually I went to Roosevelt University, and the Eden's Expressway was brand new. So we used to learn in the yeshiva, and then we had time to do homework for college, and then we had supper, and we were able to get down to Roosevelt University because there was so no traffic on the Eden's Express. We were able to get down there in 15 minutes. Amazing. And who are some of the early influences? I know I've heard that you were used to drive Rabbi Mordechai Rogoff. Is that accurate? I was, I was Rabbi Rogoff's Atzal's chauffeur. And I used to pick him up. And now you should understand, Rabbi Rogoff, Zatzal was a Rosh Yeshiva of, of, of Skokie. Right. A man who left Shanghai and left Europe and arrived here in Chicago and never changed any of his habits. He never learned English. He wore a long frock, a special type of yarmulke. He ate lunch like in Europe, the large meal was at lunch. And so the Rebbe had to be home at lunch. He was so not in this world, it was unbelievable. I drove him in a 1953 Plymouth every day to the yeshiva up and back. And then one day I had a 53 Chrysler. And he said to me, Ratner, Anaya machine? I said, yeah, Rebbe, Anaya machine. (laughs) And I asked the Rebbe, I said, how come you never learned to drive? And he said, because my head is vertracht in Gemore, and is all I think about Gemore, so if I would have been close to the car in front, then I would have thought, should I stop? Not should I stop? <laughs> the bottom line is, we were in his shear for two years. And during those two years, he spoke of 24 English words. Ratner, was main toys. My grandchildren play with toys. Which is a parade. A parade, mention gain in the gas. People go in the street. It was a different world. Just a different world. We didn't have any kosher restaurants. We didn't have no Dunkin' Donuts. Nothing like that. Not long after you come back from Israel, you already start your business career. And I'll tell you why I know that. Because I have here something called Norik Vending. Norman Elstein and Eric Rothner. Tell Correct. us a little and bit about that. Soon it became no Rick. In <laughs> other words, I was out. <laughs> we had several hundred gumball vending machines. How did that come about? Because my father was in the jukebox business and he had shuffle alleys and pool tables and taverns. I had a brother who was in the cigarette vending business who had cigarette machines in many of the same places that my father had in his jukebox in. And Nochi and I, who are today still very good friends, we went into the vending business. And in short order, my mother decided that I was no longer going to be in the vending business, but I was going to finish yeshiva and college, and my mother hastily put me out of business, and Norik <laughs> Vending became No Rick <laughs> Vending. That's great. <laughs> After you finished schooling, is that what you went back into, the vending business? Because- then I went back into the vending business in a much larger way. I had uh, 4,000 machines in Illinois, Indiana, Michigan, Wisconsin, 
And instead of grocery, little tiny grocery stores, we had them in supermarkets, in chain discount stores, and things of that nature. And this is Bell Vending? This is Bell Vending. And then I went into the uh, video game business, and I uh, had arcades, and I also uh, went into the kitty ride business that had the horses and merry-go-rounds in front of stores, and that's what I did. I have here... Three take $4,000 from vending machines, 1972, a robbery at 6013 Northridge Avenue. Do you recall that? Well, I wasn't there. That was Yom <laughs> Kippur. Oh, really? Oh, wow. It was Yom Kippur. It was an inside job. Of, so they knew uh, you weren't going to be there. They knew we weren't going to be there. And they came. And how much did they steal from us at that time? It says $4,000. Oh, much more than that. It's yeah, a lot, it's a yeah. lot of money. It sure was. Okay. And we caught the guy. Did he pay any of it back? We caught the guy, and we had to go he, he, he to... He worked for you? No. Oh. But we had to go to 26th in California, mm -hmm. and he was a really a, a thief that the case before, which was against him, they asked a, a woman, how did you recognize him? She said, he put me into the freezer of a bar, and he put 13 other people into that same freezer. This was not connected to our burglary. You counted, Your Honor. He opened that door 13 times, and I saw him 13 times. Wow. That was the guy. His name was Jeepers. Did he ever pay you back? What are you, crazy? He's he went probably, to jail. He's, probably, he's, the only person, he's probably the only person that never paid you back. <laughs> we got plenty of those. Yeah. That never paid me back. I actually, I don't know if you're aware, Mr. Rothner, but... You, know, you guys have to tell you, you did a hell of a job of... Uh, <laughs> We're just getting started. Okay. <laughs> You actually had a case against the city of Chicago. I did. Right. A filed a restraining order, which was cited and used by Pete Rose's lawyers. Are you aware of that? I know I was not aware of When they of were that. fighting the MLB, they cited your case. I mean, it, had, it was a jurisdictional issue, state versus federal court. But they cited Eric Rothner as the owner of Chicago Game Company and Bell Vending because in 1988, there was a certain ordinance passed. You want to tell the listeners about that? Well, there was an ordinance passed that a, um, an arcade had to be X number of feet away from a school. And I, who had been in existence for a goodly number of years, across from Lane High School, and had an exceptionally successful arcade that on one floor were video games. The first floor had a video games and a restaurant, and the second floor... He had video games, and it was um, a fabulously successful uh, arcade. We were test sites for some of the manufacturers that put in games and, and interviewed the young people playing, and the city attempted to close us because we were within 50 or 100 feet of a school, except we existed pre the law. It happened to be we won. Really? You got, grandf there? you got grandfathered until... We got grandfathered. Yeah. Not your first or last win. Sadly, Pete Rose is still out of the uh, Major League <laughs> yes. Hall of Fame. Did not work for him. Did not work in his favor. So at least in this time, your main line of business, was it still at the time, you know, the vending companies, the arcades? At what point did you get into the healthcare business? Which I think a lot of people now are more aware of your involvement, but less people know I went about into the video game business... On June the 6th, 1966, I bought 1,706 gumball machines, penny gumball machines, in Illinois, 
and in Indiana and in Michigan. They were all penny gumball machines. I bought that company in June, and in, by November, I couldn't make the payments that I had agreed to, to make. Within a year, where I did $55,000 a year in pennies, 12 months later, I was doing $55,000 a month in sales. I had took a penny, nickel, dime, and quarter vending machines, uh, went into much larger stores, and really did very, very nicely. And then in 1972, I saw all my friends were doing very nicely in healthcare. And I said, hey, I'm having a good time in the gumball business, and I know that I'm smarter than them, and I had business acumen, so I hooked up with two wonderful elderly gentlemen who knew the nursing home business. And on the first day of Sukkot in 1974, bought my first nursing home. And on May of 75, my second nursing home. And on June of 75, my third nursing home. I had a, a good feel of uh, business that my friends did not have. I gotcha. So, and then it, it took off from there, it, one at a time. It did. But it's interesting. Well, I mean, sometimes more than one at a time. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, back in the day, at least most of the people were, were local with their nursing homes. I mean, I remember growing up, you know, as a child, I, I didn't know many nursing home operators, but even at getting older, a lot of them had three or four, and they're mostly in the Chicagoland area. And, you know, I recall by yourself, I mean, you had, you know, many more. I was in Illinois, and then I went into Indiana, and then I went in to all the way to Cincinnati, Ohio. And this was when? In, in like in the 90s? Before 80s? that. Before that. And so yeah. when, when you bought your first home in 74, were you still running the vending machine at the same time? Sure. So I went into that vending business, and then I took over my father's jukebox business. And then when I realized that my father was not coming back to work, I sold off the jukebox business and I sold off the vending business and I remained in, uh, in healthcare full time. I was mentioning earlier to uh, my friends here that I remember as a child, I must have been maybe 10, it was probably late 80s or so, that you took me on a Sunday. I used to sometimes hang out at your house with uh, Mendy Miller. We used to, I guess, cause some trouble in your house. But then you took us, you said, okay, you guys need to work a little bit. So you took me to your office and you made me clean your blinds on Western. And uh, and you did comment how poor of a job I did. Because I was just trying to like... He got in the question, by the way. <laughs> Good job. Yeah, I, yeah. I got it. There, there you go. <clears throat> Well, I was just pointing out he he was down at his Bell Vending office, you know. So, still. so initially you were kind of focused on a few different things, and then you just decided to sell the other two and strictly focus yes. strictly on the nursing. I'm saying, but his office, his Bell Vending office, I was pointing out. I suffer from a 90s. disease called ADHD, <laughs> and that means I can't concentrate on one thing at a time. And that has you. been my success. I'm told that in the uh, warehouse of Extended Care, you still do have a lot of pinball, gumball, and jukeboxes. Don't have a lot of pinballs. Okay. But I do, and um, as time went on, I have a very fine collection of antique jukeboxes. Very cool. Do you ever play them? No. What do you, so you just store them in storage? I store them, and sometimes I light them up. It's really, it's, a, it's very nostalgic. So they work. They still work. Sure they work. I'm assuming that you were influenced by your parents as I was doing my research, they were heavily involved in a lot of different community activities. But at what point did you become someone who felt the need and got involved in 
different matters that were going on in the community. I saw that my parents were very involved in shul. Matter of fact, my parents, as time went on, ended up in Rogers Park in 1966. And at that time, there were two shuls in 1966 that had mechitzas in West Rogers Park. We davened at B'nai Ruvain. And then a year later in 67, 68, my father moved to Beis Yitzchok from Albany Park to West Rogers Park. Uh, I remember very... To its current location? To the current location? Current location. I remember very clearly that at that time, the day school movement was tiny. When they started Eric Crown, there were five kids in that school. There were three founders, and each one donated a child, and there were two others. And they hired school for, for five kids. Yeah, sure. Wow. And they struggled. We were in a bunch of different locations because there was no building that could really handle us. We were in Temple Beth Israel. We were in Beis Yitzchok had a former church across the street that had some classrooms. We were in a shul at 4300 Kedzi Avenue. I mentioned Temple Beth Israel. We were in B'nai Shalom. We were in a bunch of distant locations. And we used to get on a small school bus and be driven back to the main school, which was at Drake and Leland, uh, for lunch. It's unimaginable. So you saw the need for leadership. I saw the need of youth movement, of NCSY, of Camp Mosheva, of uh, TSY. You know, at that time, it was the greatest is today you don't open a shul without a place for the kids. And you mentioned earlier uh, Moish Kushner. He and I davened in Beis Yitzchok Shul. And our playroom in Beis Yitzchok Shul was the kitchen next to the boiler room in the basement where all the old men drank tea. So we were there drinking tea too. I mean, we were the only kids in shul. Kids didn't go to shul. There was no education. People talk about that they have a hashkoma minion. We also had a hashkoma minion. At 7.30 in the morning on Shabbos, we had a lot of Jews that went to shul. And at 9.30, they promptly got into their cars or got onto a CTA bus, and they went to work. And in the summer, they came back, and they davened Mincha and Meiriv on Shabbos with a minion. And they were very respected people. You tell that to some of these guys that are in shuls today, and they look at you like you're out of your cotton-picking skull. This was commonplace. It's wild. And it wasn't just Chicago, right? I mean, it was all over the all United over. States. People used to come, and, and, and we lost a whole generation. A father would come home in the 30s, and he'd have three sons at the table. And he'd be tired, and he would say, It's difficult to be a Jew. And then these young men went off and became well-educated, and is all they remember is a shver tzayin ayid, and they did not remain observant, and we lost an entire generation. I mean, they said there were tens of thousands of Jews in the early 1900s in Chicago. They had more people today. We think we're right. a lot of ortho. We were nothing. There was a shul that had 800 people on Friday night, 
And there was a time in West Rogers Park that we didn't have 800 people in all the shuls. Maybe we still don't. And they would close down the streets, like on, on Rosh Hashanah oh, Yom Kippur? Oh, Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur, there were 20, 30, 40,000 people that did Tashlich. Wow. wow. And this is the West Side? When yeah. That was Douglas? Or, Douglas Boulevard. Yeah. My grandmother used to go to the, her, she and her girlfriend, she grew up on the West Side, and she and her girlfriends would, you go shul to shul. She said her friend, the Rosh Hashanah and all these places, you'd pick up, and that, there were thousands and thousands of people. So education was your number one priority that you were involved with, on a philanthropic level? Well, I have to tell you, and I happen to mention most recently uh, two of my dear friends that were both in the nursing home business, uh, both died recently, uh, Jack Reichenbach and Morius Formas. We were a group that it made no difference what the color of our yarmulke was because it was all the same color. Whether it was just a plain black kippah because there weren't too many knitted ones around. And we worked truthfully as a football team and it made no difference where we were working for we just helped to build chicago and each one of us used our talents my talents happened to be real estate and i happened to buy five different shuls that were conservative or reform shuls that are today orthodox synagogues or schools the girls school and shari tikva 800 kimball I bought that building, the Temple Menorah here at Sherwin and California, which was a, a reform synagogue. It took me three, four years, but I bought that building too. Uh, I helped buy the church on Chase Street. I bought what is today Yeshur and Shul. I first tried before when it was a reform temple, and they just wouldn't sell to an Orthodox synagogue would not sell. And then Ort bought it, and they were there for a number of years. And then I went to Ort, and I, I bought the building from them. I also bought where is the Beis Yaakov on the 6300 block of California uh, that was near Tamid. I also bought that building. It's been a very, very nice experience. How many shoals are you a current member of? <laughs> Why don't you ask how many I support? Forget about a <laughs> current member. So your philanthropy still today crosses all boundaries of the community from left to right. You support everyone. Everybody from left to right and right to left and all points in between. I am very proud of the fact that I wrote a Sefer Torah for a conservative day school, Solomon Schechter. I, I also wrote a Sefer Torah for the Weizner Cheder, which is the furthest right day school in this town and uh, so you see people you don't see i see was that always people this, that need case? help and i'm there to help them was that always the situation i mean chicago like growing up you know i always mentioned earlier that like i only saw one community i only knew it my was only Torah. one committee today it be, has become a, a lot more segmented and it's right. not it's not only organizations because I've, I've been in your office and i've seen people you know single individuals that you see around town and you're always thinking like who how do these people like survive who, who helps them and they're in your office let's say like ida crown right so you know oftentimes you're a big supporter of ida crown or some of the other day schools um, i don't want to say it, but there was a yeshiva that was renting space in this city right from a synagogue right and i went ahead and i negotiated with that synagogue because I knew what I was doing. Right. And in a year or two from today, they will be there permanently. Other people just 
didn't have the ability, the interest in respect for other type of Jews. But do you feel the respect goes both ways? I mean, I, I see the amount that you do for people who are, look, you know, you grew up, you sent your kids to, you know, very similar background where I grew up, the middle or the left, or whatever you want to call it. But then, you know, there's people, there's, you know, yeshivas and stuff, you know, on the far right, and you don't necessarily see a lot of their support for some of the institutions on the left. It's, but it's, it's, it's uh, for none of the institutions on the left. Right. That's their loss. My friends who are really part of right-wing Judaism, and they look at the Federation, and the Federation represents all kinds of Jews of all kinds of persuasions. And we all know, statistically, realistically, that the reform movement and the conservative movement is shrinking. And in not too long a time, there will be a sliver of what they are today. My friends, and a lot of my friends, think that's the greatest thing in the world. And they're so ignorant because when we lose those people, we lost a Jew. And we don't know where all our Bale Tshuva and, 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 they're, and they're good Jews. They're charitable Jews. And they support our charities. It's just a terrible, I guess, lack of education. They're not realistic, that's all. There has to be some type of priority, meaning when different institutions come to you for support, are there times where you change your level of support based on what their goal or mission is? I mean, if someone comes to you, do you ever find what they're doing unnecessary? How do you kind of determine what your involvement and your support is going to be? I want to support everybody. Mm -hmm. So I just created a park, part of the JCC, and I'm very, very active because I believe strongly that the JCC is going to be something that's very important to our entire community. I also just completed, and it was last week, a um, gymnasium at the Hebrew Theological College. I thought it was a good idea. It's probably the first school, probably the first school today, because when we went to the academy, we went ahead and uh, went to uh, a park district place for gym. We're growing up. There's, thank you, a lot of success in our community. Uh, we just have to educate those with the funds as to how to spend it. Right now, our next project is to open a uh, respite program for Libanu on Tui Avenue that will operate seven days a week. I have a special grandson that lives in Cleveland, Ohio. I know what it is to have a special child it just takes all the time of the parents, the siblings, and the parents are also very interested that their other children should have a as normal life. So I'm pretty much for the downtrodden, and I'm very proud of it. Ricky, in the last 20 years, Chicago Jewish community here, what do you think are the biggest areas where we've succeeded in the past 20 years, from where we are today versus where we were then? And where, what are the areas do you think that we, we fell short? We succeeded in Torah learning. We have an enormous amount of Torah learning, and we failed miserably in being connected to all different streams of Judaism. You know, rabbis talk an awful lot of love your fellow Jew. 
And yet when it comes to loving your fellow Jew, they want to have nothing to do with them. Ricky, I want to get a little wrong? personal now. Okay. I have, a, I have a list of questions. I did some research. Okay. Talk to me about Isidore Kaufman as an artist. Isidore Kaufman. <laughs> Isidore Kaufman. And how many of the paintings that he has in circulation do you own? I have no idea how much he has in <laughs> Someone else has to give me an answer to that. But it's a very, very simple thing. My wife said that I have a disease, and that is most people, Isidore Kaufman is probably the finest Jewish artist that has existed in the last couple of hundred years. And so she said most people would be happy with one, maybe two. I did take a count. I do have 15. <laughs> I also have in my office, there was a woman who made the buildings of Chicago, reliefs they're called. A brother-in-law gave me a relief of um, Riverview, and it was nice. And I ended up really once again with the largest collection of these. So it's a disease. Does anyone come close? Does anyone come close in Chicago? I don't think so. Ricky, you apparently have an obituary framed hung in your office. Oh, yeah, the first guy that, <laughs> that cheated me. <laughs> How did he cheat you? Well, we, we um, listen, there we were bicycles. We don't have to name it. Whatever no, no, there were bicycles that we sold uh, ice cream from. And so I pedaled all day and sold ice cream. And how old were you when this? Uh, probably 12. Okay. But I was always good in math. And at the end of the day, took the inventory and I made 77 cents. And I came home so heartbroken. And my father told me that I didn't count. He cheated you. He told you that he put in, let us assume, a hundred ice cream bars and he only put in 80, but he charged you for a hundred. Wow. And then I went back and the second day I got cheated again. <laughs> And there was no third day. I never went back. <laughs> Ricky, what was the best investment you ever made? And what was the worst investment you ever made? I don't know. I can't tell you. I've invested in Israel. And I've done very, very well, which is a, an unusual thing for an American to go to Israel and make money. I'm very proud of the buildings that I built. Built a mikveh there also. I donated... I can't talk about lousy investments because there have been many, but thank <laughs> God the good ones have been very good and they uh, outnumbered the bad ones. Is it true that in order to help your mom, Allah Shalom, make Aliyah that you bought a nursing home in Israel? Well, I was very angry about that. My sister, I have three siblings in Israel, and my sister called me up one day crying. And she said that they won't let mom into this nursing home. And uh, I was in the process of buying it. And uh, I sat down with the man who was a very nice fellow. And I said, tell me, Mr. X, tell me why you won't let people with wheelchairs that are wheelchair bound into your facility. He said, my clientim, my clients don't want to see the end, what they're end will be. 
I thought that was the most outrageous, <laughs> dumb thing I, I mean, ever it's, heard. It's a nursing my, home. Uh, yeah. You know, I heard in my life. But I ended up buying the place, and yeah. it's it's a very very fine home. And very you let her in. Home. And you let her in. No, because <laughs> at that time she, she wasn't was, private pay. She, Is that what? Yeah. She, <laughs> she was living at Park Plaza. So. Okay. Ricky, when's the last time that you were afraid, business wise, that you could possibly you know go kaput, that you would lose it all? I have great faith in God. So and it was never very, a fear very, of yours. No, of course, and anybody with a brain in their head knows that. You could see problems of people that lose fortunes overnight. I have a great faith in God. My business interests are very widespread. I am in development of apartment buildings. I own student housing. I own a bank. I own nursing homes. I own assisted livings. I don't even know what the hell else I own. <laughs> but, no, God has been very, very good to me. He runs the show. What was the point in your life that you realized, you know, I made it? After my wife died. After my wife died a year, 14 months ago, I never realized how large our organization was. She did an awful lot of stuff. She helped me build this operation. Please understand that when we got married 35, 36 years ago, I was broke. B-R-O-K-E, broke. I was there in the video game business for the boom, and I hung around for the bust. And it took me seven years to get out of debt. But God has been very, very good to me. I had a good wife, I had a good team of people, and I've been blessed. And I've shared my wealth with an awful lot of people. I'm a very proud guy that... I read in, in uh, an article today about somebody who fights with low sach mode, jealous of somebody else. I'm jealous of nobody. I have everything that I wanted, and I bought whatever I wanted. I gave whatever I wanted, and I managed to make close to three minionim of millionaires in Chicago. Yeah, that, that's something I wanted to talk about, because not only have you become extremely successful and given directly to organizations, but you've also taught other people to and got them, in your words, to be successful, right? I was broke 35, 36, 37 years ago. I was broke. I I'll never forget that I was broke. Did anyone help you at that point, maybe, that you can think about that? There was a bank that lent me $50,000 and had my father co-sign and guarantee. But other than that, it was a very miserable time. I'm very proud of the fact that it took me seven years to get out of debt. And I paid everybody back every single penny. And today I own a bank. Not that it does me any good. It does the community <laughs> well. I can't borrow from my own bank, but it's helped. And, 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 and somebody came to me and asked me, Mr. Rothman, we'd like to look at what you do for charity. So I said, it's a very, very wide business. I own homes, probably 10 homes of people in this community that have lost their homes because of foreclosure. And I was there, and I bought their, their home. And they're living in their home, and nobody knows that it doesn't belong to them. 
and they're paying rent and they have the opportunity by five years, 10 years later of buying the house at that price that I bought it for and inflation did an enormous thing. I said, I have a, I have hundreds, maybe a million dollars of interest-free loans to people. I've made loans in that bank, not that I, but we've set them up in the bank. It's, it's my charity is, it's a big business and it's very, very widespread. And I've done crazy, wild things of giving people opportunities. Sometimes I won, sometimes I lost. Have you ever felt that people take advantage sure of your generosity? Do. Absolutely. And do you still go along with it? I do. I was broke. I know right. how it feels to be broke. So, so, so part of your motivation is the fact that you were once... I was there. That, right. What continues to motivate you to continue in business and, and building businesses and expanding your businesses... If somebody asked me, what do I really do? I said, I work for Claudius Real. And that's the truth. 50% of my time is for charity. And I've not forgotten from where I come. A guy comes to me and tells me that Lexus has come out with a new convertible. And it's $103,000. And he checked it out for me. And it would, it would like 100, it would cost 117000 I said, let me tell you something. I have a convertible. It's 14 years old. Is this the PT Cruiser? No, it is uh, not. Do you still it's have a, that car? No, no. Good. But I have, it's, it's a Toyota Solara. It's 14 years old. I said, my Lexus is 11 years old. My other Lexus that I have in Florida is 12 years old. I'm very proud to drive. Nobody else in my position, would be driving a 12-year-old car and being proud of it. I'm proud of it. That's very true. Do you change the oil? Do you, like, flip up the hood? I, not me. No, okay. <laughs> Ricky, you used yeah. to have Rolls Royces. Is that accurate? I had. had and you got, and you got rid of them? Why did you get rid of them? of them. Did you have an Excalibur? But they were terrible cars. Did you have an Excalibur? <laughs> they were old. They were terrible. <laughs> but they were valuable. But they were terrible. What was the coolest car you ever had? I had a 1953 Silver Dawn convertible. That so, I so, took. Your, so your point was you don't have to pay $103,000 because you have cars that still run well. That no, are 12 years old. come on. Let me ask you a question. I, I want to go back, and I know that's Jordan's phrase, but I want to use it. You mentioned that you know, what you're most proud of is that you help everyone, right? You don't, you don't see what, how religious they are. You want to help everyone from left to right. So how can we help other people in position to give feel that way? If I knew, I would do it. It's really, really very, very, very sad. And I have people that I, that God and I have made multimillionaires. Comes to giving to the Jewish Federation of Metropolitan Church. Oh, it's really a lack of education. You mentioned earlier about regarding the car and you used to take the Rosh Hashiva to school. Are there other, especially being in the position you are with, you know, different Rosh Hashivas and perhaps heads of states or, or, or other people, powerful positions, uh, have you had personal interaction with Rav Shah? I had, I had, or... uh, I had Arik Sharon in my house. Oh, yeah? And I made a dinner for Arik Sharon. Uh -huh. And it was a scary thing. We had to close the drapes. We had guards on the outside. And this is the house on Sherwin. Oh, wow. We had guards with guns 
on the outside and that people would take a and shot he, at and the And he guy. was the prime minister at the time or he was, he was uh, no, running for it? But or, he, he yeah. was in charge of giving away land. Oh, sure. It, it was scary. Uh-huh. What about Russia Russia Yeshivas? Yeshivas in my office, in my home. I want to take you to an unfortunate incident. I, I'm told there was once a robbery at your house while you were out of town and a lot of valuable collectible items were taken. Can you talk to me about the efforts to recover them? I tried. I hired, first of all, it was an inside job. It was a time that we uh, remodeled our house. The 90s? Uh, This man's parents invited my wife and I for Shabbos, and we came home, and the darn place was... uh, So you think my parents might have set it up. (laughs) Right. So they invited you out. We know they're out for two hours. The bottom line is... My father was being very friendly and talkative, so you're probably there for for many hours. But the, the fact is that it was an inside job. It was one of the workmen... And we hired a private investigator. And we've watched Jewish auctions, and I've watched Jewish auctions for 20 years, and never did anything. Ah, they did. Something of my wife's, a Yadro came, uh, found from the police, but none of the silver items, none of the Judaic items were ever recovered. Out of those types of uh, Judaica that you collect, I'm told you have lots of manuscripts and uh, historical items. I don't have many manuscripts. I have some real good stuff. Letters. I have the best collection of sforim that were written by rabbis in Chicago and printed in Chicago. And I have a great collection of letters. We hope you are aware that my good friend Moish Kushner put out a superb book and died before copies. it was put out. And I made sure that it, it, it was put out. And in the next year or two, there will be a another book on history of Chicago Jewry. It will be, first of all, on rabbis that died after 1950. 1950. The second section will be on all of the books that we have recovered. And we have 60, 70 books that were printed in Chicago, written by rabbis from Chicago. And the third will be a collection of letters that we have bought at auctions and recovered elsewhere. It's a real special piece. But the question is, there aren't too many people that are really interested I love that in stuff. history of Chicago. Do you have, do you have like a prized possession? Like what's like your number one item of those uh, amongst those? The Lomjer Gon was from Lomjer. Rabbi Hudalib Gordon. He came to Chicago as a collector for yeshivas, and a shul hired him. So uh, first of all, I have his contract with the shul, the original, and I have the what is reser- referred to as the Ksav Rabonis, that the show that hired him with all the people's signatures. I have some good stuff. Ricky, when people look back 100 years from now, what do you want your legacy to be? Hey, I tried, that's all. <laughs> I did. I helped build Judaism. These schools are in existence in those formerly synagogues because I made it happen. Nobody else made it happen. I worked closely with the Federation. They have cooperated and have grown to help the Orthodox community. Many people don't appreciate it, but I do. And I want to be known as somebody that loved all kinds of Jews and supported them. See, I, I would say that's impressive, but you could even break it down a little more is that you know I had an unfortunate incident with my son, as you recall, we came, sure. and Mr. Rothner 
gave up his time and like he made it as if like you know we had to, to deal with the issue he made it as if it this was, was his priority right but he made it as like a priority as right. if he doesn't have <laughs> right. a million other things going on in his life that he has time to sit down with us to time to talk to the school to time whatever it was and it was just amazing that someone so busy who has so much going on like would actually care and do something about it so to me that's even bigger than just building institutions it's not just about the, it's, institutions. It's the people that are it's in about the institutions. The, yeah, it's, yeah. It's, it's, it was it was personal what I think is remarkable is I think that people know that you live in Chicago, you're part of the Jewish community, that it's not just institution-wise, like you guys are saying, is that if someone falls in hard times, everybody knows, whether they have a relationship with you or not. And, and doesn't matter how religious they go, are. Go sit and talk to Ricky. Is that accurate? It is accurate. Getting older, but I don't see anybody standing in my place. And is that something that you want? I want to help people. As I said before, five times, I was broke. And I know how it feels to be broke. And you think the reason for that a lot of people don't kind of follow your footsteps in that regard is just the lack of education? Absolutely. What are your dreams for the next 10 years? Whether it's with the I city, hope to live personally. And be well, and I hope that our community will grow. We have a serious problem here. I had a meeting in my office yesterday. We have a housing problem. We have young people getting married and have no place to live. We have young people that are in education. We don't pay our teachers enough. Therefore, they can't afford to buy houses. This is a real mess. And I just am working very, very diligently on trying to buy some property and uh, rehabilitate it. You think the community... And find some way that we can help people afford... Uh, livable housing. Do you think it'll move? I mean, you've seen other communities from from Albany Park for you know the West Side where you grew up. Do you see the community We're moving not from moving. Escarlo? We have no There's place to go. Okay. I got bad news for you. Yeah. This is it. People moved out of the West Side because they lived in two flats. They lived in apartment buildings. They wanted better air conditioning. Came the GI Bill came. That's why they moved. Same thing in Albany Park. They lived in two flats. They wanted houses. We've got houses now. I don't know where we're going from here. I tried to buy a synagogue in Skokie. I was not successful. But that doesn't mean that the ball game is over. What about Tom's River? Well, Tom's River's <laughs> in New York. Come on. <laughs> well... Mr. Rothner, it's been truly an honor. I hope that you enjoyed, and it's it's uh, our great pleasure well, to do, have do, you on. Do you have any like final, final words, words? Final words for yeah. Our this party? has been a great experience because <laughs> I have never been interviewed Listen, before. We're, we're always down um, here in the basement, and you can probably you're, you're welcome anytime. You're welcome anytime. You can probably, more, you can probably find more. us nine to five here also. But uh, <laughs> I see. I no, thought, no, but seriously, I would have told my business. Do you have anything that you want to kind of leave over for people? I have a story to tell, and I think that that people would be our community, our Jewish community, our overall Jewish community would be better off. If that we we try to welcome all of these people who uh, could use our help. Do you like say when you let's say welcome all? Is it to welcome them as they currently are? Because a lot of people look and at other Jews. And try to go ahead and show them what we do if they accept it. Right, but if they and, don't accept it, and to it, treat them, they can be with as they respect. are. Right, and they can our be as they are. Our people, many of our people, are bullies. 
They think they have a few dollars in their pocket, right. and they can step on people. And they can't step on the world. It's true. It's 100%. Ricky, out of your generosity, I have one last request. Go. Can we sign off? Can you do how you end your phone calls? You. Oh, you say gesund. Yeah. All right, guys, we just wrapped up in the interview. How do you feel? I thought it really was incredible. Jordan, you did an excellent thing. Really, Jordan, you really did a great job. Excellent job there. He, I mean, he seemed interested he in seemed what himself. we had to say. I mean, yeah, was, I mean, he, look, he enjoys talking. He's one of those adults when I was a child that didn't behave necessarily like an adult, like he wasn't like so serious. So, and, and he's still like that. He still has that, that like youthful you know, I don't know, personality or whatever it is, but yeah, he, he had a lot of stuff. He just, yeah, he, he loves talking. And everything, I think a lot of stuff he said was true. I mean, like yeah. the way he was explaining about how people really need to give more towards other types of people was dead on. I think it's unique to get someone of his stature um, that everybody knows that is, you know, obviously a very successful individual and people aspire to, you know, his success, but to hear his story, his struggles, his values, what his message is, I think it's, it was an amazing opportunity. I hope people uh, took from it. He and also, he also said and this enjoy. is the first time he was ever interviewed, which I found mind-boggling. Yeah, I'm sure he's been interviewed for multiple videos and honorees and all but, that. But not but like yeah. this. Not like right. down for But like, I think, yeah, he'll, he'll, he'll come back here next week. Follow we'll, up. We'll, we'll yeah. have him. <laughs> Should we have him just talk like, about like a tra- <laughs> travel I, episode? Tell us about that. <laughs> I did want to bring up, I, I think he mentioned that like for three years he was trying to buy that um, – the building at the Temple Menorah at yes. the corner, and then I think at Rabbi we, Doug. We right, I was thinking yeah, the we were, same right, thing. Right. Rabbi oh, Doug was there. there. Yeah. Yeah. There, was, there was a little bit. Of like, I yeah. think the you know the, the lawsuit between the two of them. Right. I believe. So I, I, I don't want to get into that. So <laughs> he's a man of truth, honestly, and it was. I just thought it was. I, I mean, I was. Yeah. No, you know, listen. I you I guys, thought, I thought you guys great. are from West Archers Park. Yo, your dad is. You know, grew up with him. I'm just, I've known him by name forever, you know, but, but honestly, like, I, I think people don't realize the impact that he has. They, they know, they see the names on the buildings, but they don't know the individuals, you know, like I have friends that, you know, he paid their college education for. Yeah. He was always the guy in shoal that and, would, would take care of anybody. And, and that, everybody. Does, that doesn't show up on a building. That's something he does. Right. He, he doesn't even know how much or what he's done. Like he, he couldn't list it. Like he couldn't even list the shoals that he's donated right. to or given to. It's, it's just like too much. It's like mind blowing. You know, he mentioned like he didn't realize he made it. You know, until his wife passed away, you know, a year and a I mean, half even, ago. Even now, it's, and there it's, was, it's 10 o'clock, and he's on his way to another event by, from an organization that he supports. Weisner. So he doesn't care how religious you are. He'll help you if you need help. Yeah. Which is sort of like a unicorn, honestly, in, in today's today's day and age. That's why it's also unique that, you know, I, I want to ask, like, what motivates you? Why, why are you still doing it? You know, for me, give me 2% of the success that he has, and I'd probably be you know, sipping my ties in uh, somewhere. But what keeps him going is the community, yeah. right? He wants to continue to build. He wants to continue to grow. There's he's, no slowing down. He has a, He's a tremendous balachrayas. I yes. mean, he just, he takes it as his, like, he feels like I've been here the longest and you guys need to, like, listen to me and just, you know, follow what I'm doing here because this has to be built and this has to be built and this has to be built because you can't think small or on the individual level. I mean, he built it. Yeah, that's what I'm saying, right. And the people just trust him. Like he said, he's he's bought all these, you know, older buildings, bigger shoals and stuff that were not, you know, torn down that they, you know, turn into, you know, shoals with... And he, he's, thinking about, he's thinking about the future. He's thinking about the problems that continue that are 
you know, plaguing our community yeah, and going. he's thinking about solving them. Yeah. You know, um, one of the things he mentioned was who's going to take my place, you know, like uh, until someone does, y'all, uh, <laughs> I'm ready. I'm ready to go. You think okay. so? Well, are you willing to devote 50% of your time to the community? The other, the other 50% goes to this podcast. Yes. So that's, you got to keep that in mind. Yeah, I don't know. I have a lot of 50%s I got to give up. <laughs> but, but just imagine like what he does on a daily basis. No, yeah, it, I can't. You can't. I mean, like how many people he deals with and individuals, organizations, and his own business. I mean, he's got his own, you know, his own. He's very old school. He also, I think he, he balances a checkbook. <laughs> he's like old. He does a couple other things that are like that's old school, great. but like he's just, he's right. I mean, he's old school and he just, he's not like a lot of the younger generation flashy and this and that. He just, he, there's, like he there's said, so he, much custody. He, he, he has a car right. that works. What does he need another one for? Guys, right. I, I I can't even explain how excited I am. I I'm <laughs> no because the Rabbi Kushner book, the uh, Chicago Rabbi, is that's coming out. Like I've yeah. always dreamt about Volume Two coming out. I own multiple copies of the book. I've given away copies of the book, and I'm pumped. I did not realize that it was in process. Why do you own multiple copies of that book? Because if I see it on a shelf and I'm buying something else, I will buy a copy. Really? Why, why because, you... because it's a it's a book that obviously is not you know republished all the time, so copies are somewhat scarce. Are you afraid you're going to lose multiple copies? Well, I, it's also a nice gift to give to people. I think it's a great piece of history. So I will always, if I see it, am I at you know Catcher Stom, and there's a copy. You'll I, buy it. I'm buying it with whatever I'm getting. So okay. yeah. Let me ask you a question. Just the nature of this episode. You know, obviously some of them are lighter and we get into some of our craziness and we have, you know, like an episode like today. They go by episodes, right? Is that how they go? Yes. So okay. as we call they, them. Sodes, yeah. <laughs> I'm not that young. Um, but like an episode like today where, you know, it's not necessarily about, you know, the jokes and the wisecracks and all that, but, you know, more about, you know, serious issues like intermarriage, like serious issues, like, you know, communities, you know, falling apart or communities not supporting each other. So Jordan, yeah, what, like, well, what you- I do, I do foresee, I have some special interest projects that I want to pursue. <laughs> um, <laughs> maybe I haven't told you guys about that, but I, I do want here and there, we're going to, you know, we'll talk about random idiosyncrasies that we have in vacation and different things. But I think there's also going to be an opportunity to have like I want to do profiles on, uh, you know, kind of people that are lost to history a little bit and, and shine a light on that. You know, just other kind of um, historical events kind of do an episode that centers around that. So maybe that won't appeal to all our listeners, but hopefully to some. What if it, it doesn't has... appeal to some of the hosts? <laughs> then you can, you can sit out. I'll do it on my own. Are you going to give me like reading material before? No, I no, no, because no, you won't read it. You can listen to music while he does. Yeah. It. <laughs> yeah. I'll, I'll listen to an audio book. Guys, do you want to... <laughs> while let, I'm driving. Let's wrap up just by talking about some of the feedback we've gotten recently. Um, because It's all over the place. And I, you know, I think... We should kind of discuss yeah, it here so I that agree. our listeners know that we are. Someone, by the way, someone had feedback and they gave it to me. It was somewhat constructive criticism. I, you know, obviously, I'm I'm very welcoming to that, but they did say we weren't sure. Like we we can't tell you all this because we feel like He's he'd sensitive. be. Abs- yeah, yeah. Was and I a, said you're absolutely right. He this, would cry. Was, was this an attorney? No. Man, <laughs> <laughs> maybe. But anyways, okay. I won't go to that. But I, some people are saying the episodes are too long. Some people are saying they're too short. Thoughts? Some people. Some people are saying that we release too many a week. Some people say yes, they want more. A lot of people are saying too many a week. I, I don't buy that. I feel like we do try to keep it a reasonable time. Like we don't want to release. We're not Joe Rogan, right? I don't think we need three-hour episodes. But at the same time, if we have something going, I think we just keep going until it dies down naturally. 
Are you allowed to stop when you're listening to a to a podcast and listen later? Are you allowed to? Yeah, I, people do does, that. Does I think. that work? All right. So why people? Who cares? If, I think I think they want to get to the end. Or I just think it's like they don't want to have to like devote two hours to listen. Well, that was but you don't have to devote two hours. You listen in the car. You pause. You go do your thing. Later on, you listen at a different time. Whatever. Who cares? Let's just go into the yellow zone for a second. Yeah. You order a steak at a, at a restaurant, and the steak is huge. Like, are you complaining like this is too big? You just eat what you want. Like, if you want to eat all of it, okay, right. you'll eat all of it. And if you don't want it, just. I mean, the bot- I agree. The bottom line is we're just going to do it as we like, think. Do they think like they're going to miss something at the end of the episode? So like, just make it shorter so I can hear the whole thing because if you make it over an hour then i'm not gonna listen to the end well, and well, i look, might miss something. in their defense if i have a podcast i listen to and i see like an episode came out and it's like an hour and 34 minutes i'm like that's a long episode doesn't mean that i won't listen to it it just means like in my head i'm like, okay that's a lot lot more time i have to now devote to get through this but i, I think that just it becomes incumbent on us to yeah, build that rapport with the audience and if and if people value what we're putting out there then they will come and they'll continue to come maybe the, the idea is that we're going to continue to do you know, some some funnier episodes and some episodes like tonight that are a lot more serious, and a lot more important. Do you think Ricky listened to any episodes before you came on? I was actually wondering that. I was going to ask no him. No way. But yeah, you don't think so? No, no way. Yeah, probably not. I think we have to have him back on for like yeah. also another serious episode, but then also a casual episode. Like okay. we were just talking about like vacation. He goes that'd, to South Haven, that'd right? That'd be great, yeah. We should actually bring the studio to him in South Haven. He's a very nice place over there on the lake. Oh, yeah? Yeah. You can. It's very chill vibes. I know you'd like Jordan. <laughs> <laughs> okay, guys. Play us out again.